BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. The Bowery Boys, episode 129, Chinatown. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. This is our very first podcast, Tom, where we are recording as residents of two different boroughs. It's amazing. I never knew this day would happen. Now we're now we are separated by a body of water, but connected by the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge. Absolutely, and by history itself. Since last we recorded, I moved to Brooklyn and out of our neighborhood here in the Lower East Side. I want to thank all of our listeners on Facebook who left little kind messages, and our friends on Facebook also gave us great suggestions for pizza to celebrate that night. So and thanks I, for those. Yes, and I have worked my way through that list, by the way. And a special thanks to our listener Chip for a great house. Present. I greatly appreciate it. Now, for this week's show, I'm actually looking back at fondness at this old neighborhood that I used to live in. Now, we say Lower East Side, but in fact, this is a part of the ever-expanding neighborhood of Chinatown. East Chinatown, New Chinatown. We will be talking about the entire history of Manhattan's Chinatown. Of course, there are other Chinatowns in New York City, and we'll get to those in a second. But today, we're focusing on Manhattan's. The 19th century history of Manhattan's Chinatown. It's so fascinating. It's shrouded in mystery. It's written about in gangs of New York. There are many legends associated with it. You know, this was a period of time when there weren't a lot of Chinese people in New York. And so there was a certain exotic quality to their culture. And they brought along with them, of course, their shops, their religion, and their food all of which we'll be sampling today. Now, of course, every major city has its own Chinatown, but we're going to tell you why Manhattan's is so distinctive. So join us for an intriguing walk through the alleyways of Chinatown's history. Tom and I will do our best. We will endeavor to get every Chinese name, place. We'll do our best to pronounce them properly. But if we don't get them all right, we apologize right now. This is our pronunciation disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, after more than a decade in the neighborhood, perhaps we should have taken some courses <laughs> 
at least in pronunciation. Why don't we get situated telling the listeners exactly where the neighborhood is? Because it's a little bit surprising where the current boundaries, if there are such a thing as current boundaries to Chinatown. Well, and when we're telling the story of the 19th century Chinatown, that's also different from 21st century Chinatown mm-hmm. uh, because it has stretched quite a bit. For today's podcast, this Chinatown will be loosely defined by these borders. I'd say Grand Street to the north, Worth Street to the south, and Columbus Park, Allen Street to the east, and Lafayette to the west. Although, of course, no matter which source you look at, you're going to get different boundaries. It's a neighborhood that's currently growing and growing in different directions, and so there's not really... Well, because you lived on East Broadway over here, which is not within the confines of these streets right here. No, but modern Chinatown is actually defined by East Broadway, which we will get to near the end of the show. Wouldn't you say, basically, the nucleus of Chinatown, if, if there is one, might be Chatham Square is one sure. potential, and Columbus Park, which you mentioned earlier. Right. But, but definitely the main street of Chinatown would be Old Mott Street. Right. And most of what we're going to be talking, well, I don't know about your notes, <laughs> but most of the things that I'm talking about are on Mott Street. Mm-hmm. And specifically, the southern end of Mott Street, where it comes out at Chatham Square or the Bowery. East of Mott Street, there's Pell Street hits Mott perpendicular. And the cute little Doyer Street sort of snakes down from Pell, again, hitting the Bowery. We'll talk very specifically about Doyer Street, because it's the most interesting and the most, shall we say, bloody street. Crooked (laughs) We'll get to that. According to at least a few sources I looked at, Manhattan's Chinatown is the largest concentration of Chinese living in the Western Hemisphere. Within these two square miles are 70 to 150,000 residents and where people live and work and eat, do their shopping, worship, and live their, their lives mainly speaking Chinese. And it's an incredibly dense neighborhood, often a closed community. And it seems like every street just has like a hundred businesses on it, no matter the size of the street. And there's always people in the streets, a very bustling area. As you mentioned before, we should really be calling this episode Manhattan's Chinatown, as there are several other smaller Chinatowns in the city, including in Flushing, Queens, around Roosevelt Avenue, uh, in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, along 8th Avenue. And, and there are newer Chinatowns as well in Elmhurst, Queens, and out in Edison, New Jersey. But M- Manhattan's Chinatown is really the first in the city and the largest. Now, I'd like to start, actually, with a discussion of the very first Chinese people in New York, because what's incredible, considering that there's thousands of Chinese Americans who live here in New York, thousands and thousands of people, before 1830 or so, there were actually no Asians living in the city, as far as we know. America had actually begun trade with China as early as 1784, and there would be occasional visits from Chinese businessmen. Most likely the first Chinese to really pass through here that weren't businessmen would have most likely been sailors, and they would have been working and staying along Corlear's Hook, actually not that far from where the modern Chinatown would be today. I believe we know the date of when the first Chinese woman came to town. Uh-huh. Now, not surprisingly, you know, if we're talking the early 19th century, an Asian woman might have been considered exotic or something to behold or say exhibit. If you're thinking of P.T. Barnum and American and his, and his American don't Museum, like where this is going? No. Well, in 1832, there was a woman by the name of Afong Moy who was exhibited into town. She she was wearing traditional Chinese garb and she would be sitting 
in a traditional Chinese room with oriental furniture sitting around. Now, of course, the when the New York Mirror reported on her, they completely butchered her name. I mean, this to me just says it all. When they, they named her Julia Fuchi Qingcheng King, daughter of Hong Wangxi Qi King. Now, that's not her name at all. <laughs> Uh, she was, <laughs> but that was amazing. Whatever it was, <laughs> she was part of a traveling exhibition, and she was displayed. She had a show. This was before the days of Barnum. Needless to say, being an Asian at this time in New York was seen as something exotic and truly strange. But this is already the beginning of the 1800s. So how did the Chinese get over? Mostly, it was thanks to the California Gold Rush, where a lot of Chinese came over. And then, of course, there was even greater opportunity with the expansion of the Transcontinental Railroad. Thousands of Chinese men came over and worked across the country. And building so many towns, the roots of so many towns were helped by these new Chinese newcomers. Now that could not have made them terribly popular with those competing with them for jobs. No. They were highly persecuted, of course, once those jobs were done, because then, of course, they'd move on to other jobs. The other workers, the non-Chinese workers, considered them to be competition because they would work for lower wages. So to escape some of this persecution, many men would strike out on their own and would spread throughout the country. But coming from the West, which is a very interesting right. way of migration, considering most of our country is going West. But, but if they're, they're coming from China. Right. So they eventually would head towards the East Coast. This is amazing to me because we actually can identify, or at least amongst a handful of candidates here, who the first Chinese resident of New York was. I actually have three candidates here. Okay. And it's hard to truly narrow it down when you're dealing with like primary 19th century sources and you're dealing with people in a minority community. Who might be underreported. Exactly. Right. So the first candidate... In terms of gritty New York City history, this is certainly the most glamorous candidate. His name was Abao, but he was called in New York Quimbo Apo. Now, he came over during the gold rush, got wealthy really quickly, and then claimed to move to New York in the 1840s. By 1855, he opened a small tea shop on Spring Street. He actually even used his foreignness, I mean, because he was truly a unique-looking individual at the time, and actually made a name for himself. Now, unfortunately, he's kind of an unreliable witness. This is, you know, a lot of this is by his own account. In 1859, he was a suspect in a scandalous crime that rocked New York City. He was accused of stabbing and killing his landlady. And eventually, he was sentenced to Sing Sing. After another crime later in his life, he actually went mad and was locked away in a mental hospital. He was delusional. He considered himself to be, quote, the lord of the world. So it's clearly no surprise why he would be documented early as a resident of the city. He was... Well, exactly, because he committed crimes. Right, and was locked away. Uh, In fact, his son, the dashing George Appa, would actually become a legendary five points pickpocket. Um, So maybe not the most exemplary of first Chinese, but I have a couple more options that are a little bit more respectable. One of them is named Ah Su, and he is alleged to have come to New York in 1847. He opened a combination tobacco and Chinese candy store. Mm -hmm. He opened it down on Cherry Street, and this is down by Corler's Hook. This is where I said, you know, the, the sailors... Uh, would hang out. And so Chinese sailors would come through. And this store actually catered 
two Chinese sailors. So there must have been a significant amount of people coming through that he was able to make a living. He even had a boarding house, which would also be very key in a lot of these early businesses. Sure, and we'll talk about that in a second, as would cigar shops. Oh, yes, which leads, of course, to the third candidate. I mean, this, was, this is more the traditional first Chinese resident of New York. His name was Ah Ken. He was a Cantonese merchant and arrived in the 1850s. He had a cigar shop on Park Row and then eventually would move to a place on Mott Street. Now, I don't know exactly the reasoning for moving a business on onto Mott Street. It just might have been cheaper rent or whatever. Maybe he lost his lease. But amazingly, this it, because of him and a couple of very other key merchants that would move there at the same time that would create the nucleus for the modern Chinatown. He would open his home to other arriving Chinese men that came over the next decade. There would be several dozen that would stay with him and then they would, you know, get a job and then they would move on. Another merchant uh, who, who was named Wu Qi, I believe is how he pronounced it, also opened a general goods store here uh, on, on Mott, Mott Street. Street. Yes. And so when you're talking about Mott, too, it's all the way down at the bottom. We're talking literally that very first block that almost faces into Chatham Square. Right. Correct. The second key to Aachen and why he's important was the fact that he did open a cigar shop. And this would be one of the first occupations for a lot of Chinese men. And this was an occupation. Cigar rolling was an occupation that the Chinese had out in California, too. And it was a skill that they brought to New York City. So I believe for both of these merchants, they were selling things downstairs and the dormitories doubled as a place where the guys could sleep and during the day they could roll their cigars. Some other occupations that some of the early Chinese men would wear billboards. A lot of like non-Chinese businesses to grab people's attention because you sure. know he was a an exotic yeah. Asian man. And so you, they put a billboard on him and have them in front of their establishment. Kind of like the people who dress up as the Statue of Liberty around tax <laughs> time. Those yeah, those ugly green outfits. They they do get your attention. <laughs> Now, the other kind of business, of course, would be these variety stores, Chinese groceries, where they'd sell all sorts of exotic ingredients and sell all sorts of things like incense and jade, pipes, even shark fins. These were the early roots of the modern variety store, which even today when you walk through Chinatown, there's all these stores that just seem to sell such a hodgepodge of, of items. But I think that's because so many of them had their origins in being so many things at the same time. You know, they were selling medicinal items and roots and herbs, but then they were also selling gifts and fine silks and things like that. Yeah, so. well, as we'll find out, these they would be far more than mere merchants of certain products. They would, they would run the gamut. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. By the early 1880s, there would only be about 2,000 Chinese men. And they would at first, you know, have lived near the waterfront, lived in various places, as I've described. But by this time, they will have mostly lived right here in the Five Points area and would start blending with the Five Points culture, the non-Chinese Five Points culture. By the early 1880s, many, many more Chinese were coming into the city and settling in this area because, you know, there weren't just these two stores that you were talking about, uh, but others started popping up along that block 
between Pell and Chatham Square on Mott Street, including another boarding house, a grocery store, and the city's first Chinese restaurant. The birth of the New York Chinese restaurant begins here. Right, because there were so many men, again, men, who needed to be served and needed a taste of back home. It was a small, nondescript place on Doyers Street between Mott and Pell, just small tables and chairs and men chowing down on their Cantonese noodles and soups, much like the food that's available in Chinatown today. I believe that eventually these, because of course they were using exotic ingredients that you well, probably couldn't not find, right? Really. Not, not really. yet. At this point, mm-hmm. this restaurant and then the other Chinese restaurants that would open on these streets were really being forced to use American ingredients that they could find because mm. Chinese vegetables, which are of course cooked up today in Chinatown, mm-hmm. would not be first grown in the US until the eighteen nineties out on Long Island. So that that caused a little bit of improvisation. They had spices mm. but not all the same veggies. So in a way this is the I mean, and of course, this is happening in San Francisco as well. The birth of the American Chinese right. food, which is, of course, like quite different. Everybody's favorite, chop suey. Chop suey. Not okay. to mention... General Chow's chicken? <laughs> well, not to mention crab rangoon. Yes. <laughs> okay. But, but chop suey was an invention um, on the West Coast that was being used. Popular legend has it that it was actually made for American tourists, you know, who were duped into thinking that, that they were trying this exotic cuisine. But others have it that this was actually cooked up out west for Chinese and non-Chinese laborers on the railroad who were, you know, eating sort of the scraps uh, that were left in the kitchen in the mess hall. So, But it's a truly American dish. It is born in the USA. Now, these men had moved on to other occupations in the neighborhood. They basically created other types of jobs for themselves. Well, for example, the now ubiquitous Chinese laundrette, the first of which did not open in New York, but in Belleville, New Jersey. When 70 Chinese workers uh, came to Belleville, New Jersey from San Francisco to work for this giant hand laundry business, the brother of the owner of that company decided to give it a try Hmm. in New York City. So he opened up New York's first Chinese laundromat just across Chatham Square at East Broadway and Catherine Street. So just kind of right across Bowery there. But right but right near Mott. And it was a huge success. It was such a success, in fact, that by 1885, jumping ahead a few years, there were more than 1,000 Chinese laundries in the city. A thousand? So clearly they weren't staying in the Mott area. They were all over the place. No, otherwise it would have been far cleaner. <laughs> No, no. in fact, the, the, the laundromats spread all over the city, and once again, the Chinese were doing the jobs that other people didn't really want to do, mm-hmm. and for a better price. So they found a market. One quick note about Chatham Square here that I really love thinking about, mm-hmm. because when we think about standing today at Mott Street and looking across Chatham Square, what do you think of just a, you know the, the traffic roundabout, people, pedestrians in the street? But at this time, around 1900, there would have been a giant elevated railroad oh, exactly. right there, because it was the transfer for the 2nd and 3rd Avenue L line. So that just introduces yet another, like, rambling, loud, dark, smoky, sooty factor into this whole equation. And that is right there at that heart of Mott Street. Right, the, uh, right at the base right. of Mott. Now, despite that elevated railroad, everything sounds a little clean. Well, and, it's just uh, because and, uh, I haven't turned the page <laughs> on my notes yet. Well, uh, and, and above board. But as we know, there was an underworld 
also happening here. I think you're hinting at the gambling dens、mm-hmm. and the opium parlors. And these would be, of course, very popular with the press of the day, writing about these types of places. And very popular, quite frankly, with people who were not Chinese who would come down to the neighborhood. Well, at least the opium dens would be. The gambling parlors were pretty Chinese.、Mm-hmm. The, again, this is a male society, which you'll get into in a moment here, overwhelmingly. And so people, you know, at the end of the day, would relax and play dominoes or whatever the game of the day was. And they did bet, but it was a way of relaxing, as was smoking opium. They actually didn't have bars in Chinatown. No, the, this the, is the, the big vice. The vice of choice was opium. Opium. Now, the first gambling den that I came across was at 18 Mott Street,、uh, which had been rented for a few years before it was purchased in 1873 by Tom Lee.、Mm. Now, I think you'll be talking about. Yes,、Mr. we'll、Lee. get to Mr. Lee here in a second. This is perhaps in 1873. This is perhaps the first Chinese. Real estate transaction that happened in New York, which is incredibly important to note, because if you think that even falling back a few years to 1873, the people who were setting up shops and moving into this neighborhood and boarding houses were looked down upon, and they could be evicted because none of them owned their buildings. So the fact that Tom Lee bought this piece of real estate ensured that this Chinese landlord was here to stay. This vice of opium, these opium dens, would of course become popular not just with Chinese men, but with the late nineteenth-century Bohemia. Now, these dens or joints, as they were called on the West Coast, were really quite opulent and alluring. Now, in New York, however, along Mott Street, I think a lot of them were hidden.、Mm-hmm. They were sort of in basements, dark. Not quite as romantic. No,、um, no lush curtains. No,、uh, no red carpeting as you might have found in San not Francisco. Not that you'd want to lie on. <laughs> so, what would you do in an opium joint? I have. I don't know the first thing about opium.、Mm-hmm. So,、uh, I, I mean, I assume it's not a bunch of people sitting around in divans and、uh, well, and talking,、of. you know, talking politics or movie stars. Well, I don't know about politics or <laughs> <laughs> movies. Didn't exist.、So. Speaking about movie stars, but people were lounging around the whole concept. Was that you get to go lounge and then have your opium prepared for you in a pipe that would be heated over a lamp, and then you、mm-hmm. would inhale the fumes of the drug as it vaporized. And I'm picturing these places as extremely dark, shuttered with curtains, maybe a、Just、little the, bit of a gaslight, the glow of the lamps,、mm-hmm. spooky. Well, by 1896, there were an estimated 25,000 New Yorkers who were smoking opium, most of whom were white men and women. We should add that opium remained legal in the United States until 1914. But these proprietors of the opium dens would make a lot of their money just off the markup that they would put on this、hmm. and the preparation that they would do. So, by the way, Tom Lee's parlor there at 18 Mott、mm-hmm. Street is still there today. It's not a gambling house or an opium den. Instead,、um, the five-story brick apartment building is there on the ground floor. You'll find the elite health products. With offices <laughs> on the second floor. Well, a lot of the places that we're talking about will the buildings themselves will still be there. Of course, much changed now. Just across the street at Eleven Mott Street, you find another place run by Tom Lee in 1901. His brothel. Oh, it just so it just gets better here. So now we're down. <laughs> now we're now we're a brothel, but there aren't that I'll many. I'll get to churches later, <laughs> but I just wanted to start with the good. But there、stuff. aren't that many women, right? Well, most of the women who work there actually were white, and they、oh, came、okay. from the Five Points slums. But most of the patrons came from the the white men who were, you know, roaming. The Bowery, which was just a block away, thousands of men. If you walk by today, there's a gift shop downstairs called the Chung Wah. 
Well, it sounds like it was very popular. It was. Also, as we've said, with the white population of New York City, who was drawn to these few colorful blocks. You can just imagine the stores and the restaurants decorated with the rich and vibrant colors and bright lanterns. Uh, throwing light out onto the street and signs hanging from all the storefronts. It was it was exotic and romantic. And rather it was more totally different. Yeah, and rather more festive than. I mean, you have that elevated train that would soon run right past it. And right, on the other side, yeah, you have the tenements and slums of Five Points that were a little dreary. So it must have looked spectacular. So the tourists as well were drawn down, which changed a bit the nature of the business in the stores, because then the stores had to start catering a bit more to the white tourists, just as the restaurants were. Well, obviously, judging from all of those things that you've just said, it wouldn't be surprising to hear that due to the fact that there weren't very many Asian women, it was considered a bit of a, quote, bachelor society. Most of the Chinese that lived here actually came from one area in China, the Guangdong province, which is in the southeast area of China. Still today, most Chinese Americans will trace ancestors to the Guangdong province. Newer immigrants have a different lineage, which I'll explain later. Despite this growing community, there was still obviously a lot of prejudice and a lot of discrimination going on. Huge amounts of anti-Chinese sentiment swelled wept through America, actually, through the 1870s because of the depression that was happening at the time. This led to something that's a real stain on American history. In May of 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed by Congress, which prevented almost all Chinese immigration into the country and only allowed a very small number in 1892. Because of this, it almost froze the Chinese population in place. They couldn't bring over families. It was difficult to leave and come back. This was in place until 1943. And I should note that no other race or nationality was treated in this particular fashion. So it's considered today to be a very baldly racist law. So almost out of protection, it ended up being a very closed community. They quickly bound together in various different ways to protect themselves, to protect their ver- their best interests after 1882. One of the ways was through a benevolent society. And, the, and keep in mind also, this is happening in San Francisco as well, which was the other major Chinese community in the United States. The Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Society was the main organization. It was formed one year after the Exclusion Act in 1883. It was a force of social power for the Chinese and actually acted as a representative to the outside world. Its original address was 16 Mott Street. Like, didn't we just mention that there was a like a brothel across the street or next door? Again, everything's like on the same block. (laughs) Today, it's at 62 Mott Street, and it's considered the city hall of Chinatown. Now, being the mid to late 19th century, you know, this is happening in mainstream politics, but Legitimate politics, the line blurs between what is, you know, what legit and illicit. This organization um, operated above board, but it also operated and watched over and protected those gambling dens and those opium dens. This would lead to a group of secret societies. These secret societies would be called tongs. One way you can describe it, I guess, I mean, it's it's hard to, to pinpoint this in a nuanced way, but it's kind of like if the Shriners met the Wyos. There was a public face to it, and there was a very respected public face to it that sort of hid the bad things that these tongs sometimes had to do. Could anybody join a tong? There would soon be a variety of different tongs. So if you were out there looking for some right. membership, you could, you know, most likely get yourself up shopping. to no yeah. good. 
Now, Tom Lee, you mentioned him. He's yeah. he's considered sort of the early mayor of Chinatown with his opium den, brothel, and gambling parlor. Well, he didn't he didn't operate those himself. He had a tong by the name of the On Liang Tong, a tong that had links to the mainland China and to San Francisco. These tongs operated. There was like a blur of activities right at the border of what was legal and acceptable. Lee actually, I mean, so he was a legitimate real estate owner, but he also relied on gambling and the opium trade for profits and for power. He had links to Tammany Hall. I mean, of course, you couldn't really survive without this, and so he was really respected amongst many Democratic politicians of the day. He was even able to pay off police and officials with all the money that they were getting. And in fact, just uh, down the street on Doyer Street at 6 Doyer Street was an office to the Tammany Hall operative Chuck Connors above the Chatham Club, which was a performance space. So, so, so they, were, they were much more closely tied than one might expect when you think of this as a – it wasn't quite as closed in the modern context, I think. Tammany had their foot in this kind of organized crime. This is sort of like early organized crime. In fact, many historians consider Tongs and not early gangs like the Wyos as being a seed for modern organized crime because they kind of had it far more together and far more with it than some of these gangs did. Now, of course, Lee's power and the power of the Tongs like An Leong attracted rivals, of course, and rival Tongs would soon form, leading to bloody reprisal. The chief Tong against the An Leong Tong. This is going to be a tongue twister tongue. A tongue twister? <laughs> a tongue twister. <laughs> the rival Tong of the An Leong Tong was the Hipsing Tong. Uh, the Hipsing Tong was led by a man who, his real name was Sai Wing Mok, but people called him Mok Duck. So Mok Duck was the head of the invisible head of the Hipsing Tong. So all, all tongue twisters aside, there are these two rival tongs, Tom Lee's and Mock, and Mock Duck. Well, Mock Duck, let me tell you about Mock Duck. The historian Bruce Hall wrote a description of Mock Duck, just a colorful figure here in 1904. Mock Duck, quote, was strutting around on Pell Street covered in diamonds, shooting at an on Leonger one day he missed, and loudly proclaiming that Tom Lee must die the next he also had these long, very deadly fingernails, Mock Duck, as he was walking down the street. And this was sort of to signal that, like, he was so powerful that he never had to get his own fingers dirty. He could do all of these criminal activities without muffing any of his diamonds. There were also no Manny Petty places open yet in No, Chinatown. believe it or not. I know. Absolutely. He was such a voracious gambler that he would often like spend a huge amount of nut money just to bet on the number of seeds that would be contained in an orange. So these gangs would eventually clash here in Chinatown. I mean, where would they go? There's like four streets. It's, um, they would collect, at, I think, the most interesting street in Chinatown, and one of the most legendary, certainly, Doyer Street. Crooked Little Doyers. It's a crooked little street nicknamed the Bloody Angle. At the time, it would have been dominated there by a Chinese opera theater, which you're going to get to in a second. It was so violent an area that urban legend, anyway, would believe that some of the dead Tong members would be buried underneath that theater and would be buried mm. on the, underneath the buildings in the basements alongside the road. Now, due to conflicts because of the gambling and opium dens, there would be these tense face-offs here. The weapon of choice among some of the Tong men would be hatchets, handleless hatchets. Another urban legend, but I, th I think this one might be true. This is where we get the phrase hatchet man. Now, I also read, though, that this hatchet business was more popular in the white press 
than it was on Doyer Street, well, and that a lot of sure. these criminals actually had guns. Yeah, I think that a lot of this is imagery to sort of frighten and dazzle uh, the readers of the newspapers, but some of it did happen. Well, the Chinese opera house that you're talking about at 5-7 Doyer Street was a place where the, these Chinese men would go when they were getting homesick for the music, a little opera music on Sunday night, perhaps, the music of their homeland. The performances took place in the basement of the building. So imagine the scene, this room packed with Chinese men watching the performers sing and dance in flamboyant costumes. But even this scene wasn't free of the Tong warfare because mm -hmm. on August 6, 1905, during the performance, the entire front row of men from the hip sing tong stood up, turned around, and started shooting away at the audience, mostly members of the An Leong Tong. And, and so you just have this bloodbath in the theater and the police from the Lower East Side, they heard all the guns going off, and so they pushed into the theater as people were also trying to escape, clubbing their way in, and all they found were four dead Tong members in the front row. Meanwhile, everybody else had escaped either through the doors or through the tunnels because there are these passageways tunneling through the back alleyways and behind stores all throughout Chinatown. So people had these ways to escape. Now, the first decade of the 20th century, there was actually a truce between the Tongs, between the An Leong and the Hip Sang. And even as a show of this truce, some of the members who had ponytails cut them off. Incredibly, both An Leong and Hip Sang survive today as merchant associations. The An Leong Merchant Association, which is at 83rd Mott Street, and the Hip Sang is at 15 Pell Street. You know, they're more on the up and up today, of course, but they're not through a suspicious behavior, which I'll talk about near the end of the show. Now, if I might just add a word about Five Points, because, again, Five Points throughout the 19th century had been this, of course, notorious area. If you haven't listened to our two podcasts on the subject, I'd recommend those. Mm -hmm. By this point, though, by the 1880s, 1890s, Five Points has become kind of passe. And in fact, as early as the 1880s, Calbert Vox, who was the co-designer of Central Park, had been hired to start planning a park to replace the most notorious intersection of Five Points, the actual Five Points. Mm -hmm. And in 1897, Columbus Park would open up on this very site. So today, when you go down to Columbus Park and you walk around, you are in the area, in the main intersection of Five Points. And today, it's usually the heart of Chinese New York culture. There's usually right. often like musical shows, dancing. Sure. Um, or just people playing like, yeah. Chinese checkers or playing with marbles or especially a lot of senior citizens mm -hmm. out during the day. It's a great place to go. The park is loved. Now, something else notable happened in 1914 when the first modern apartment building opened up called the Sun Lao, or the new building, at 33-37 Mott Street. This is notable because living conditions had been so bad for residents up to this point and would continue and still, I mean, let's face uh, it, yeah. they still are. Mm -hmm. But men would sleep on these wooden planks, really on sawhorses, that doubled during the day as their tables where they might put together some trinkets or roll these cigars that we were talking about. Efficient, but not very therapeutic. And needless to say, you know, several apartments shared a single toilet out in the hallway, which led to terrible health conditions. 
So when this new building opened in 1914, each apartment had its own heat and its own private bathrooms. You can imagine, like, what a difference this made in Chinatown. Multiple families still lived in the same apartment, but at least they had their own bathroom and heat. And in a new building. Which is still there today. It's a six-floor building at 33 Mott Street. And downstairs, uh, there's an eyeglass store and <laughs> another shop called Munchie's Paradise. <laughs> I feel like almost every address that we have said so far, you can actually see probably by standing in one particular place on Mott Street and just looking up and down the street. Just a couple doors down is the Church of the Transfiguration at the corner of Mott and tiny little Moscow Street. Now, this was built in 1801 as a Lutheran church. It burned down. It was rebuilt, the structure you see today, in 1815 and sold in 1853 to the Roman Catholic Church of the Immigrants Parish. This is notable because since 1827, that parish had been serving the Irish and the Italian immigrant community in the neighborhood, and they were not really quick to embrace their Chinese neighbors. Sure. Because they were seen as heathens. Who were these people? These Chinese who were flooding into the neighborhood. The church even went so far as to try to throw the Chinese out of Mott Street. They literally, they leased all the buildings on Mott at one point from Pelt to Park Street and then evicted all the Chinese tenants immediately, some with no notice at all. So that's why it was even more important when the Chinese started buying the buildings themselves mm -hmm. that they were actually the landlords. And now the church today is a Chinese congregation. Yes, today it's a Roman Catholic church and it holds daily masses in Chinese and English and Sunday masses in English, Cantonese and Mandarin. So it certainly embraces the Chinese today. Yeah, it looks like it might be out of place when you walk down the street. It's sort of a shock to see this old structure there. But in fact, it's like a pivotal part of the community today. Now let's get a little bit here to the modern era. Now I said that the Exclusion Act was repealed in 1943, in December of that year, we're in the middle of World War II, China's our ally, and we have new enemies, of course, the Japanese. Right. This repeal allowed for some regular immigration, but, you know, still at a quota. It wouldn't be until the Immigration Act of 1965 when the floodgates would really open because it would eliminate the notion of a quota system and would be replaced with a more nuanced evaluation system for people to come into the country and legally become citizens. 1965 is actually seen as a pivotal year in the Chinese-American community and actually a lot of ethnic communities throughout the United States. It's a very important date. And it's really the beginning of modern New York Chinatown development. During the 20th century, it's right next to the neighborhood of Little Italy, where, of course, uh, many Italian-Americans live. But with the more tourist-focused Little Italy, the Italians that lived here would move out to other Italian neighborhoods and other boroughs, and Chinatown would slowly consume the streets that had once been strictly Italian. Of course, a lot of new New York Chinese would join them out in the boroughs, and this and during the 70s, 80s, and 90s would be the formation of those other Chinese... The satellite other, Chinatowns. Satellite, satellite Chinatowns would be formed at this time. Another interesting thing occurs after 1965. A majority of the Chinese that come over at that time are no longer from the Guangdong province, but rather from the Fujian province, which is actually nearby it. But it has a significant difference in that they speak Mandarin and Fujianese dialects and not Cantonese. 
And so when they arrived and they settled here in the neighborhood, they would actually settle a little bit east of traditional Chinatown. And this um, was because they weren't necessarily welcomed in abso- the other neighborhoods? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it would, they, you know, they speak, it's different customs to us as, you know, non-Chinese. We may see, you know, we may not understand the, the differences, but there, there were quite pronounced differences. And so the new immigrants moved to what would be called the new Chinatown. East Broadway would, oft, would be the center of that and would often be called Little Fuzhou. Uh, further changes to this neighborhood would be the rehabilitation of Chatham Square. Now, this was where the elevated railroad used to be. The hub was right there. In 1975, to sort of mirror what you had mentioned about the apartment complex on Mott Street, um, would be the Confucius Plaza apartment. It's probably the largest apartment structure definitely the largest apartment structure in Chinatown and built specifically right, all downtown I yeah think. And, and built specifically for for Chinese to live there and it's right next to the Manhattan Bridge of course today's Chinatown's a thriving energized neighborhood you know bubble tea parlors you know the roast duck in all the windows of the restaurants so that all sounds very nice but so are you suggesting that there isn't any longer any underground? Uh, that the tongs, the, that someone has the thrown... The tong wars. The tongs have been thrown away? Oh, no. In fact, there still is a lot of underworld activity that has gone on in Chinatown in recent history. One of the more significant things that have happened around this time that um, is not so pleasant is, of course, the garment sweatshops that have ah, happened yes. throughout Chinatown. Um, newly arrived immigrants, the moment they started coming over, like in the 40s, they would come to Chinatown and they would be cheap labor for the new garment industry. And so there would be sweatshops scattered throughout the neighborhood. There's been crackdowns of this since the 1990s, and I suspect that they may return based on the fate of the New York economy. And certainly since we have moved to the neighborhood in 1997, 1998, you saw sweatshops on the second, third, fourth floors of buildings all over the place. And they they would be really shocking to see, uh, especially being a newbie to the neighborhood at that time. Keep in mind, there's thousands of brand new Chinese people coming into the city. They're making money not for themselves, but to send it back home to their families. So you might be wondering, like, so there's thousands of people coming in. Of course, a lot of them are coming in legally, but there's also a very significant illegal human smuggling operation that's also happening out of here in Chinatown. They would call it the snakehead industry. This would be the illegal smuggling of Fujianese via airplane or, more dangerously, by ships. The most notorious of the human smuggling operations would be that of Sister Ping, and she operated during the early 1990s. And she ran her empire out of a restaurant called the Yangxing Restaurant at 47 East Broadway. Like these early variety shops, she out of this out of this place, she served a variety of different functions. Some of them, you know, not necessarily illegal. Like she would be like sort of a banker for people who would cash their paychecks, and they would sure. she would you know Which was keep the money. Yes, of course. Then she was doing all of these others. I mean, she was involved in this massive smuggling operation. She amassed millions of dollars for herself. She owned property all around the world. She even owned an ostrich farm in South Africa. Oh, how odd. Uh, <laughs> um, it was such a sophisticated setup that she even employed members, modern members of the Chinese underworld, the modern gangs. There were indeed modern versions of these street gangs. They would be gangs with such flashy names like the Golden Shadows 
and flying dragons. And these gangs are believed to have actually had very long-standing, if vague, connections to the On Leong, to the Merchant Association, and to Hip Sing, which are above the board groups now, but hmm. they may have connections to these groups. These gangs ruled East Broadway uh, in New York during, during New York's bad period and during the 1990s, and they often collected at a bar called the Golden Star Bar at 9 East Broadway, which was a site of frequent shootouts during the 80s and 90s. So that would be all the way down near Chatham Square. Correct. Near, yeah, right after you walk underneath the Manhattan Bridge. So Ping and some of the members of the underworld here, she worked specifically with a group called the Fuqing, which also operated on East Broadway. They were eventually apprehended due to this tragedy that happened. There was a boat called the Golden Venture that had, was actually smuggling uh, legal immigrants, and it ran aground in Rockaway Beach, Queens. And it was filled with 286 illegal immigrants who then had to swim ashore. Ten of them drowned. Ping was eventually caught and thrown into prison in Connecticut, and she's still there to this day, serving a 35-year sentence. What I find amazing, though, is her base of operations, the Young Sun Restaurant, still is still operating. You can still walk by it. You can still go in and get yourself a delicious meal. I don't know if the connection is, if, she, if there's still connection with Sister Ping's family, but it's still operating. It's an operational restaurant. What is the address again? 47 East Broadway. Wow, you have taken us to a very grim place. Very Brett. sinister. Well, I will, t- I will mention one more thing that's very pivotal to the world of Chinatown. And to many New Yorkers cannot do without this. And this would be the Chinatown bus lines. Of course, yes. You can get to Boston, <laughs> to D.C., to Philly. For exactly. like 10 15 20 dollars they were the very first one was the Fungwa enterprises that started in 1997 initially it was supposed to just be for you know between chinatowns just just chinese right. between these neighborhoods so they can visit relations in other cities and the Fungwa is new york's chinatown to boston's mm-hmm. chinatown but of course this expanded very quickly because what you do is it's a you know you take a bus it's like $20 or $15. It's right, far 15. undercuts the other major bus lines and it's far cheaper than a train and it's a spawn many competitors. So today when you're walking through, especially the East Chinatown. Right at the base of the Manhattan Bridge. Um, there you'll you'll see buses uh, you know, along the street. You'll see people lined with their bags. It's been so successful that major bus lines like Greyhound have had to come up with these dollar bus solutions just so they can keep up because um, they're very successful. Now, of course, there's also, you know, they're, you know, they're not known for being the safest ride. So, you know, you take your life in your hand when you try one of these buses. But Tom and I have done, have done yeah, these many, many, times, many times going to places. Yeah. One final thing that I will mention before we leave Chinatown, you should visit the Museum of the Chinese in America, or MOCA, M-O-C-A. It just reopened. It's a, it's a fantastic and beautiful museum, partially because it's designed by Maya Lin, um, who was the architect of the Vietnam Memorial. I'll have all the information on that museum and a link to their website on our website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where I'll dig up a few of these pictures of Doyer Street in late 19th century Chinatown. Very fascinating to look at. We'll also have the addresses of the different places that we talked about in the podcast so that you can print it out and just stand <laughs> at that corner of Pell and Mod and just look around. This is one of our podcasts. You can definitely do like a little like makeshift walking tour if you did. We've hopefully mentioned a lot of addresses to stir your imagination and to bring you back to this fascinating world. So thanks for joining us on our historical walk through Chinatown. Next month is our Halloween show. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. <laughs> <laughs>
See you real soon. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.